Welcome to Healthy Wealthy You, where we'll continue to explore all aspects of functional medicine and good health. We'll help you find the tools to become the best version of yourself. Now, here is your host, Dr. Camille Vardy. Welcome back to Healthy Wealthy You. This is Dr. Camille. Well, last week we didn't get to broadcast live due to more crazy, crazy weather and power failures here. But I hope you'll go back and listen to last week's episode sometime because this is a two-parter and there's so much to say on this subject. But if you're tuning in live today, welcome. And it's fine to listen to this one first. We're talking more about emotional intelligence and how refined perspectives on emotions can help us solve sticky relationships and create win-win situations. And we're talking about this using an absolutely wonderful book called Atlas of the Heart, Mapping Meaningful Connection and the Language of Human Experience. This book is by Brené Brown, and she's written numerous books and given many talks that you can find on YouTube. If you aren't familiar with her work, I hope you'll be inspired to check her out. And if you are familiar with her work, I hope you'll enjoy our deep dive into this book. Of course, I'll be putting my own spin on what she has to say and sharing some of my own stories. As I mentioned last week, the thing that I like best about this book is the way she's organized emotions into really useful categories based on what triggers us to feel those emotions. We looked at a few of those categories last week, such as the places we go when things are uncertain or too much, or the places we go when we compare, and we'll do more of her categories today. The basic premise of the book and of emotional intelligence itself is summed up so well, as she puts it. Language is our portal to meaning-making, connection, healing, learning, and self-awareness. Having access to the right words can open up entire universes. When we don't have the language to talk about what we're experiencing, our ability to make sense of what's happening and to share it with others is severely limited. Without accurate language, we struggle to get the help we need. We don't always regulate or manage our emotions and our experiences in a way that allows us to move through them productively. And our self-awareness is diminished. Language shows us that naming an experience doesn't give the experience more power. It gives us the power of understanding and meaning. A wonderful illustration of the power of language comes from Vera Narazian in The Perpetual Calendar of Inspiration. And she says, Once upon a time, there were two countries at war with each other. In order to make peace, after many years of conflict, they decided to build a bridge across the ocean. But because they never learned each other's language properly, they could never agree on the details. So the two halves of the bridge that they started to build never met. To this day, the bridge extends far into the ocean from both sides, 
and simply ends halfway, miles in the wrong direction from their meeting point. And the two countries are still at war. That's the power of language and the power of discernment. So let's dive in. The first category that I want to talk about today is the places we go when we're hurting. Let's remember every category has positive emotions as well as challenging ones. And even the challenging ones have lessons to teach us and positive things that we can pull out of them if we look at them deeply, deeply and courageously. This category includes grief, but it also includes hope. So let's have a look. Brené Brown does an excellent job with grief that I will quote extensively from her here. Um, she starts quoting Elizabeth Gilbert. Grief does not obey your plans or your wishes. Grief will do to you whatever it wants, whenever it wants. In that regard, grief has a lot in common with love. And Robert Neimeyer, a psychology professor and grief researcher at the University of Memphis writes, a central process in grieving is the attempt to reaffirm or reconstruct a world of meaning that has been challenged by loss. Brown cites three foundational elements of grief, loss, longing, and the feeling of being lost. In terms of loss, death and separation are tangible losses associated with grief. While some of the participants describe losses that are more difficult to identify or describe, these losses included the loss of normality, the loss of what could be, that potential, and the loss of what we thought we knew or understood about something or someone. Related to loss is longing. Longing is not conscious wanting. It's an involuntary yearning for wholeness, for understanding, for meaning, for the opportunity to regain or even simply touch what we've lost. Longing is a vital and important part of grief, yet many of us feel we need to keep our longings to ourselves for fear we will be misunderstood or perceived as engaging in magical or unrealistic thinking or that we lack strength and resilience. She also talks about the feeling of being lost. Grief requires us to reorient every part of our physical, emotional, and social worlds. When we imagine the need to do this, most of us picture the painful struggle to adjust to a tangible change, such as someone dying or moving away. But that's a very limited view. The more difficult it is to articulate, to give language to our experiences of loss, longing and feeling lost to the people around us, the more disconnected and alone we feel. Talking about grief is difficult in a world that wants us to get over it or a community that is quick to pathologize grief. Brown quotes David Kessler, a grief expert. Each person's grief is as unique as their fingerprint, but, whenever, but what everyone has in common is that no matter how they grieve, 
They share a need for their grief to be witnessed. That doesn't mean needing someone to try to lessen it or reframe it for them. The need is for someone to be fully present to the magnitude of their loss without trying to point out the silver lining. She mentions uh, a framework for, that comes from the Center for Complicated Grief. The Center for Complicated Grief. I'm amazed that there's a place like that. It's at Columbia University, and they put grief into several categories. Acute grief occurs in the initial period after a loss. It almost always includes strong feelings of yearning, longing, sadness, along with anxiety, even bitterness, anger, remorse, guilt, maybe even shame. Thoughts are mostly focused on the loss and it can be difficult to concentrate on anything else. Acute grief dominates a person's life. Next comes integrated grief. It's the result of adaptation to the loss. When a person adapts to a loss, grief is not over. Instead, thoughts, feelings, and behaviors related to the loss are integrated in ways that allow them to remember and honor the loss. Grief finds a place in their life. Complicated grief occurs when something interferes with that adaptation. When this happens, acute grief can persist for very long periods of time. A person with complicated grief feels intense emotional pain. For example, they can't stop feeling that their loved one might somehow reappear and they don't see a path forward. A future without their loved one seems, for, seems forever dismal and unappealing. Grief dominates their thoughts and feelings with no respite in sight. Relationships with family and friends flounder. Life can seem purposeless, as if nothing matters without their loved one. Others begin to feel frustrated with them, helpless and discouraged. Even professionals may be uncertain about how to help. People often think this is depression, but complicated grief and depression are not the same thing. Then there's something called disenfranchised grief, a less studied form of grief that's based on the research of Tashel Bordere. It's grief that is not openly acknowledged or publicly supported because the experience is not valued or counted by others as a loss. This grief can be invisible or hard to see by others. Examples of disenfranchised grief might include loss of a partner or parent due to divorce, loss of an unborn child, or infertility, the loss of what might never be. There are a multitude of losses experienced by a survivor of sexual assault and loss of a loved one to suicide. For example, sexual assault survivors suffer from numerous losses, many of which are invisible to others. These might include loss of one's prior worldview, a loss of trust, a loss of self-identity and self-esteem, loss of freedom and independence, of a sense of safety and security, and even a loss of sexual inter interest or partnership. 
truly grief is one of our most profound and deep emotions. I personally find comfort that it's being so deeply explored. Networking, sharing the stories, navigating new paths do help. Certain losses can never be replaced, but the new directions and new connections that we forge sometimes take us places that we didn't expect and would have never achieved. Sometimes our grief feels endless. It can lead us to hopelessness and even to despair. But to look at hopelessness, it's important to look at hope. And that is another of our emotions in this category. As Brené Brown puts it, hope is a function of struggle. We develop hope, not during the easy or comfortable times, but through adversity and discomfort. Our book references the researcher C.R. Snyder, who thought that hope was made up of three aspects. One aspect is goals, realistic goals, the feeling of, I know where I want to go. The second is the pathway to achieving those goals. This includes the ability to be flexible over time, to adjust as needed along the way. I know how to get there. I'm persistent. I can tolerate disappointment. I can try new paths again and again. In my mind, that's the ability to re be resilient in the process. And we talked a lot about resilience in a previous show. The third aspect of hope here is agency, that we believe in ourselves and we believe in our abilities. We believe that we really can accomplish our goals. Now, hope comes when our goals, our pathway, and our agency are tested. We forge a path to change because we must. And that's why developing new goals, new paths, being resilient in the process is so important. Because life, as you know, doesn't usually turn out exactly as planned. Snyder says that hope is something that's learned. Children learn hopefulness when they have relationships that are characterized by boundaries, consistency, and support. And support is one of the big things about resilience. We saw that in that earlier episode. Children that have the highest levels of hope have experience with adversity. They've been given the opportunity to struggle and in doing so, learn to believe in themselves in their, and in their abilities and in their ability to be successful. Brown says, prepare the child for the path, not the path for the child. And I love that. Our next category of emotions is the places we go when our hearts are open. Of course, the first emotion that we think of here is love. And this is beautiful and wonderful. And some people would say it's the meaning of life. What has been written about love throughout history is beyond measure, and one might say even love is beyond words. So to discuss it here is more than we could possibly say today, but I do want to share one of my favorite quotes about love, which comes from Maya Angelou. Love recognizes no barriers. It jumps hurdles. It leaps fences. It penetrates walls to arrive at its final destination of hope. 
I will make one point about love today, and this is just my opinion. I do absolutely believe in true love, but I don't believe in unconditional love. Love is a living thing. It needs attention, cultivation, nurturing. It needs to be fed. We cannot just assume that love is unconditional, that love, once given, will always be there. Like any living thing, it can die of neglect, it can die of starvation, it can die of silence. So if you have love in your life, express it, celebrate it, let the person know. Don't waste another day. Don't waste a minute. Now, there are two important emotions in this category of where we go when our hearts are open. And these two emotions are two sides of the same coin. They are trust and betrayal. Our book cites seven elements of trust and defines them as uh, defines them using the acronym BRAVING, B-R-A-V-I-N-G. B is for boundaries. You respect my boundaries, and when you're not clear about what's okay and not okay, you ask. You're willing to say no. Next is reliability. You do what you say you'll do. This means being realistic about competencies and limitations so that you don't overpromise and are able to deliver on commitments. I spoke in an earlier episode about the realization um, that gave me the ability to say no and how life-changing and freeing that was for me. This is a big one because good intentions are not enough. The A is for accountability. You own your mistakes, apologize when needed, and make amends. V is for vault, meaning keeping secrets as though they're in a vault. You don't share information or experiences that are not yours to share. I need to know that my confidences are kept and that you're not sharing with me any information about other people that should be confidential. Next is integrity. You choose courage over comfort. You choose what is right over what is fun, fast, or easy. And you choose to practice your values rather than simply professing them. N is non-judgment. I can ask for what I need. You can ask for what you need. We can talk about how we feel without judgment. We can ask each other for help without judgment. Lastly, G is for generosity. You extend the most generous interpretation possible to the intentions, words, and actions of others. I really love that. Now, on the other side, what is betrayal? The most common types of betrayals include affairs, lying, betraying confidences, rejection, abandonment, physical, sexual, or psychological abuse. This can lead to a range of other emotions, anxiety, depression, anger, sadness, humiliation, PTSD. Brown says it's possible to heal betrayal but it's rare because it requires courage and vulnerability 
to face the pain we've suffered, or on the other side of things, to hear the pain we've caused. She sees that the only way back from betrayal is accountability, amends, and action. None of these things are possible without acknowledging the pain and possibly trauma that's been caused to someone without rationalizing or making excuses. It involves braving. In this context, we often forget about the importance of self-trust. Self-trust is normally the first casualty of failure or mistakes. We stop trusting ourselves when we hurt others, get hurt, or question our worth. She says that we, we can use the braving tool to think about self-trust. B, did I respect my own boundaries? Was I clear about what's okay and what's not okay? R, was I reliable? Did I do what I said I was going to do? A, do I hold myself accountable? V, do I respect the vault and share appropriately? I, did I act from my own sense of integrity? N, did I ask for what I needed? Was I non-judgmental about needing help? And G, was I generous with myself? I know that this one is a big one for me. Do I respect my own boundaries? Do I maintain integrity to myself? I have difficulty with this on two levels. It's the commitments to myself that are the easiest to break. If I'm in a hurry and if someone pops up with a new demand, I can always break a commitment to myself without facing a negotiation. I can break that boundary in a split second. Too busy to go get a full night's sleep? Okay, well, tomorrow. But we can't continue to do this day after day. The second part that's hard for me is putting my needs last was deeply ingrained in me growing up. I mentioned last time how hard I was trying to be perfect. Well, it's so strange how deeply ingrained these things can be. So often I'll have a friend say, it sounds as though you really could have used some help with that project or that situation. Why didn't you call me and ask for help? And I really have to be honest and say it was because it never even occurred to me to ask. So keeping these boundaries, these commitments to myself, the integrity to myself, these foundational aspects that form the structure of self-trust are something that I personally need to consciously work on always. Let's take a break here. We'll be right back with more of Healthy Wealthy You. This is Dr. Camille. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Healthy Wealthy You will help you find the tools to become the best version of yourself. We'll explore all aspects of well-being, nutrition, lifestyle, fitness, mental health, relationships, family, work, finances. It's you living your best life. No matter what your current health or life obstacles, we want to help you cross that bridge to your new life. Our experience with food, nutrition, supplements, functional medicine, specific health issues, and every aspect of what it means to be truly healthy will provide something for every level 
full of interest, bringing new twists on what you already know. We'll help you figure out why you haven't achieved your goals and learn strategies to help you create a personal approach that finally works for you. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Healthy Wealthy You. If you have questions for Dr. Camille or her guests, feel free to join us on the show at 866-472-5792. That's 866-472-5792. Now, back to the show with Dr. Camille. Welcome back to Healthy Wealthy You. This is Dr. Camille, and we're doing a deep dive on emotional intelligence and a wonderful book, Atlas of the Heart by Brené Brown. The next category we'll look at is the places we go when we feel wronged. I only want to talk about two of the emotions in this category. She's got in this book, 87 emotions in 13 categories. So we're just choosing the big ones. The first is anger. And she cites a really interesting study about anger. In this study, 7,500 people were asked to identify all of the emotions that they could recognize and name the circumstances under which they might experience them. The average number of emotions that people could identify were only three. Three! These emotions were happy, sad, and angry. So you can see why we need to be able to identify and understand emotions better. But when we looked at the circumstances of the emotions, the things that people were naming as anger were actually about 20 different emotions, including fear, confusion, frustration, hurt, isolation, sadness, helplessness, humiliation, and more. Brené Brown has a lot to say about anger, but I don't want to give anger too much of our time and energy today. There's already too much anger in our society, and I personally would like to knock it down to size. Now, it is important to remember, however, that every emotion has a positive and a negative side. And anger's positive side is that it does tell us when we have been wronged. And that has value if it's appropriately directed and at a level that's equal to the wrong. Now, as Brown puts it, sometimes owning our pain and bearing witness to struggle means getting angry. When we deny ourselves the right to be angry, we deny our pain. There are a lot of coded shame messages in the rhetoric of, why so hostile? Don't get hysterical. I'm sensing so much anger. And don't take it so personally. All of these responses are normally code for, your emotion or opinion is making me uncomfortable, or 
suck it up and stay quiet. Anger is a catalyst. Holding on to it will make us exhausted and sick. Internalizing anger will take away our joy and our spirit. Externalizing anger will make us less effective in our attempts to create change and forge correction. Connection. Forge connection. It's an emotion that we need to transform into something life-giving. Courage, love, change, compassion, and justice. Anger is a tool, and like any tool, it's all in how we use it. Now, I do want to introduce a couple of additional thoughts here. I think that one reason so many people identify with anger is cultural. We allow women a fairly rich rich landscape of emotion, and certainly when women talk to each other, much is expressed. But with men, anger is one of the only emotions they're allowed. Angry or happy or chill. And when it's angry, it's sometimes get angry and get even. And that has devastating consequences for us socially. I think of this whenever there's a mass shooting, as we had this week. And this is, you know, we have one or more of them every day in the U.S. on average. The other thing that I want to emphasize is the context of anger and how much of our diet, habits, and our environment create anger. All of our emotions are physiological. They're the product of our neurotransmitters. And people don't always realize that or don't think about that. Histamine is a neurotransmitter, and histamine is an inflammatory chemical. And that means when we have inflammation on our brains, we act with anger and aggression. And there are so many chemicals in our food and our environment that cause inflammation. Pesticides, preservatives, stabilizers, texturizers, there's so many things that aren't food and don't belong in food. You've heard me say it before. If it wasn't food 500 years ago, it isn't food now. Please don't put it in your mouth. Now, it's not just histamine, but also other neurotransmitters too. For example, neurotransmitters are affected by excessive amounts of protein. Protein runs the electricity through the brain. So we think carbs are bad, fats are bad, and protein, we can have as much as we want. But proteins are the precursors for the electricity that runs our nervous system. So when we eat too much or we eat it in too concentrated a form, like protein bars and protein powders, it can drive our brains excessively. It's like an overheated phone or computer. Our brains just get overheated in that way. Now, caffeine adds to the story. It stimulates neurotransmitters that are called catecholamines. And caffeine stimulates our adrenals, putting us in fight or flight on a daily basis. Now, again, I think of this whenever there's a mass shooting or some kind of angry conflict that I hear about in the media. I immediately think, what has that person been eating? What was in their drinking water? What medications have the have they been taking? What is inflaming their brain? Because there's appropriate anger in response to, I have been wrong. But there is also the inflammatory kind. 
the my brain is agitated and I can't think straight kind of free floating anger. And that's very hard to deal with because anyone who's in the wrong place at the wrong time can become a target. And I really feel so strongly that we have to clean up our act on these chemicals if we're to remain safe and keep our children safe. Now, the second emotion in this category that I do want to address is self-righteousness. It's often confused with anger, but it has a much more powerful edge to it. This is moral indignation. It convinces the person or group that they're morally superior for believing what they believe. I am right, and I have a right to be right, because I am on the side of right, and I stand for righteousness. This has been used a lot to stoke people's emotions, and we see it a lot in the media. It brings the force of law or justice or religion to the conversation. And the thing is, these things often don't belong there. John Mark Green said, the self-righteous scream judgments against the others to hide the noise of skeletons dancing in their own closets. The problem comes in when both sides believe that they hold the morally superior position. They are the lawful and the just, and the other people on the other side are evil. This only leads to escalation and completely drowns out any compassion or empathy and sometimes even common sense. And it can get even worse. To continue to view the other side as evil, to resolve any moral ambiguity, to justify immoral actions towards the other group, and to resolve any moral conflicts, the next step is to dehumanize the other side. It becomes a battle of good versus evil, and the battle heats up. People start to do things that are outside of their own moral code. So how can these actions be justified? By starting to think of the other side as being less than human, the moral code no longer needs to apply. So for example, in the abortion debate, one side says, how can you not care about unborn children? You're so immoral. And the other side says, how do you not care about the suffering of the children once they're born or the suffering of mothers, especially maybe if they've been raped? You're so immoral. And before you know it, abortion clinics are being bombed and the personnel who work there are even killed. That is unchecked moral indignation leading to dehumanization. And the next step, the next step is outright demonization. They deserved it. They had it coming. And we see this a lot in our society, and it's got to stop. We've even seen this dehumanization enshrined into law. Historically, during the Civil War, we saw the three-fifths clause, where slaves were legally defined as three-fifths of a person. And still today, we see people waving the Confederate flag, advocating for these principles, and we see them claiming that if Jesus were alive today, he would support gun ownership to protect the children. Well, <laughs> these people need to go back for a refresher in Bible study, in my opinion. 
But more than that, in order to take that view, they're dehumanizing the children and all of the people that are killed by gun violence in this country today. I once saw a meme that was so profound, and I think of it often when I see disputes like this in the media. Four people are sitting at a table, and there are 25 cookies on the table. 12 cookies go to the CEO, 12 cookies go to the banker. And then they give one cookie to the farmer saying to him, be careful, that immigrant is going to take your cookie. Well, we can fit any pair of opposing groups here. It could be Democrats and Republicans. It could be different religions, different races. It's so important to remember that there really would be enough resources if there were less greed. We desperately need to stop fighting each other, each other over that one remaining cookie. We need to focus on the real problems in our society and not get distracted. The conversation of how to move forward and create win-win on a national and even a global level is being hijacked daily. And it's intentionally being hijacked by those that profit from the status quo. I do understand that much of what is happening in our country is happening because people see their lifestyle eroding Part of the American dream is that each generation was supposed to have it better than the last, but that's not what's happening. Our standard of living and quality of life is going down. Part of that is that there simply are a lot more people in the world, more people using more resources. But we also have to remember that there were 25 cookies to start with and not claw at each other for our share of that single one that's left. We're all just trying to provide for our families and make the best life we can. At the core of it, we are all trying to do our best. And that's the problem with our moral divide. Both sides think that what they are doing is the right thing. And that's why I like this deep dive on emotions, because we really could just continue this national argument endlessly, or we could recognize each other's humanity and find that deep down, we all want the same thing. And maybe within that, there is hope. So how do we reconcile this? Bell Hooks wrote in her book, All About Love. For me, forgiveness and compassion are always linked. How do we hold people accountable for wrongdoing, and yet at the same time, remain in touch with their humanity enough to believe in the capacity to be transformed? A very good question in these times and a challenging balancing act to be sure. Let's take a break here and we'll be right back. This is Dr. Camille and this is Healthy Wealthy You. Bertie told me Voice America is on Twitter. Follow us at Voice America TRN. Healthy Wealthy You will help you find the tools to become the best version of yourself. We'll explore all aspects of well-being, nutrition, lifestyle, fitness, mental health, relationships, family, work, finances. It's you living your best life. No matter what your current health or life obstacles, we want to help you cross that bridge to your new life. 
Our experience with food, nutrition, supplements, functional medicine, specific health issues, and every aspect of what it means to be truly healthy will provide something for every level of interest. Bringing new twists on what you already know will help you figure out why you haven't achieved your goals and learn strategies to help you create a personal approach that finally works for you. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Hosted by modern medicine woman and transpersonal psychotherapist, Lena Franklin, Medicine Wisdom is a radio talk show that will guide you on expansive journeys of transformation, inspiration, and powerful embodiment of your soul's purpose. We all have a medicine, a unique gift that's meant to flow through us and into the world. Wisdom comes when we transform the false aspects of our inner and outer lives in service of embodying the truth and light of our most expansive desires. Your heart-ignited desires are the access points into discovering who you are and why you're here on Earth. Medicine Wisdom, Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Healthy Wealthy You. If you have questions for Dr. Camille or her guests, feel free to join us on the show at 866-472-5792. That's 866-472-5792. Now, back to the show with Dr. Camille. Welcome back to Healthy Wealthy You. Today, we're looking at emotional intelligence and the book Atlas of the Heart, by Brené Brown. To sum things up, let's talk about a couple of concepts that bring all of this together for us. Brené Brown discusses a really interesting concept of emotions called near enemies and far enemies. Now, these are not people who are enemies. This is the idea that some emotions are so distinctly different from each other that they're clearly separate. They're far enemies, and we recognize them easily. This could be love and hate, courage and fear. We see it really clearly. But the tricky ones are the near enemies. These are emotions that might appear to be the same, but they aren't. And they actually work against each other and undermine each other. So it's helpful to be able to recognize them. One example is the pairing of love and attachment. And this is unhealthy attachment. Attachment is not love for its own sake, for the pure joy of loving. Attachment can come from unhealthy needs. It can be transactional. I'm afraid I cannot make it on my own financially. I'm afraid to be alone. I'm overwhelmed at the thought of selling the house and starting a new life. I'm resigned to being here until the kids grow up, even though we never talk 
and we don't agree on much. This kind of attachment actually blocks love. It can breed resentment. It can grab. It can demand. It can drain. It can cost us the opportunity to start over in a more satisfying life. As a child of divorce myself, I can say that while it was terribly painful at the time, both of my parents became a lot happier, and that made me a lot happier. And eventually, things did get a lot better for all of us. Now, everyone is different, and I'm not saying change is always better, but we might just consider what is healthy love and what is just a habitual attachment. Another pair of near enemies might be calm and indifference. True calm, especially in challenging times, is a precious thing. But indifference can also look like calm. Now, I don't care what you do. I don't care what happens in this situation. That's indifference. That is a disconnect. That can mean a lack of participation in creating an outcome. And that's not helpful if it leads to complaints about the outcome after the fact. And it can also lead to deepening alienation over time. Indifference is a huge obstacle in relationships. It can keep us from actually even having them. How often do we work alongside someone every day without knowing much about them, understanding their motivations, even in a professional sense that is relevant to the work environment? And how often do couples become indifferent to each other after years of marriage, indifferent even to their own goals as individuals or their joint goals in the marriage or as parents? How many of us are just trying to get through the day? And then after a time, we're blindsided. What a powerful word that is. Hit from the side from our blind spot. And how much of that blind spot was of our own creation? Brené Brown talks about what she calls performing connection while driving disconnection. It's such an interesting phase, performing connection. It's acting as though we're connecting without really doing so. And behind it, we're becoming more and more disconnected all the time. We act interested. We act invested. Oh, tell me about that while we're staring at our phone or while we're folding laundry and trying to keep the toddler out of trouble and we're only half listening or maybe being in an argument and thinking more about what we want to say next instead of listening to what the other person is saying. Or maybe we're just mentally block, blocking them out thinking, oh, I've heard this before. Here we go again. Driving disconnection can be assuming we know it all and not listening, jumping in and problem solving before we've even really heard the problem or when no solution is being asked for and the person really just wants to share the experience. Perhaps they just want to talk it out for themselves and to reach their own conclusion or simply just to vent their feelings. There might be subtle disinterest or even outright shutdown. And if this happens often enough, we can disconnect from the situation ourselves and not even try. My husband, my wife, 
doesn't want to hear about this, and the days become years, and the disconnection grows. True connection is really listening. And if we can't listen right now, offer a time when we can. It is really taking time to understand the situation, the feelings. It's asking what's needed. Do you just need to vent or to feel less alone? Or do you want my help to try to solve it? Or maybe you just want me to distract you and make you laugh. Tell me what you need. Another way that we drive disconnection is to try too hard to relate. Sometimes people just want to talk about themselves. They want to be heard. They might not want to hear about the time a similar thing happened to us. Sometimes the story we might want to tell them might be useful, but not if it hijacks the conversation. Hijacking the conversation is something that we see a lot in the media, especially social media. We might assume we know what the person is saying and take the conversation in another direction. Or we might block the person out because it's uncomfortable. Or maybe we put our bias on the situation because of the person's differing politics or culture. We just don't understand what they're trying to say. This is where empathy is so important. As we discussed last week, Empathy, again, is the ability to understand another person's thoughts and feelings, even if we don't share them. And the lack of empathy is a deep, deep problem in social media. This lack of empathy, even antagonism, is even cultivated on social media. And it's so important to keep that bias in our minds, especially when things get heated. When we hijack, we can ask, what am I protecting? Is it my ego? Is it my sense of self? Do I want to protect the feeling that I'm right to feel that I'm a good person? Am I protecting the people who taught me my values? And if that's the case, am I doing it unquestioningly, trying to protect the, trying to protect the few crumbs of the cookie that is all I feel that I have here. Maybe I'm hijacking to protect my own behavior, my way of doing things. And are those behaviors still serving me or my family or my community, both in the short term and in the long term? Or are they just behaviors I've become habituated to? Are they responses to emotions under the surface that I'm not naming? Or maybe even traumas that I'm not acknowledging? Are we protecting something that we feel belongs to us? Is there something that we have the right or that we have that we think might be taken away? Then again, we must ask, who's really doing the taking? Am I really directing my feelings? to the right people. Are we really seeing the other person for who they are, listening to their story with true empathy and without the overlay of our own bias and judgment? It's such a hard thing in our media-driven world. But we must find that empathy and find that understanding. There are nine billion people on this tiny planet, 
yes, we recently passed the 9 billion mark, and we are going to have to learn how to get along. I think so much of this boils down to acceptance of others and of ourselves, to know that emotions, even the ones that we might think of as negative, have their positive side because they teach us important things. Anger can show us when we've been wronged. Sadness can show us when there's a need to be filled. Boredom, frustration, longing can all, in their own way, inspire creativity. Perhaps we can all accept that we're trying to find our own way in the world, to navigate the complexities of both our inner world and our outer world. Hopefully we can do it together, each in our imperfect way, but always doing our best. I love the story about a kindergarten teacher who asked her students, what is love? One of the best answers I've ever heard to this question came from one of her six-year-olds, Emma. Emma answered, love is when you're missing some of your teeth, but you're not afraid to smile because you know your friends will still love you, even though some of you is missing. None of us is perfect. Our emotional landscape is complex. And through it all, I hope, like Emma, that you can smile today. This is Dr. Camille and Healthy Wealthy You. Thank you so much for joining me on Voice America Radio. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Healthy Wealthy You. Have a question but weren't able to get on the show today? Join us next week and call in. Until then, hold that inspiration. 